We're going to begin our time in God's Word a little bit differently this morning than we usually do. I would like you to take out this uh, cream sheet of paper, maybe you already have it, uh, and I'm going to give you a quiz this morning as we start. It's a pop quiz. Um, And uh, you should know if you're visiting with us today, we're very happy to have you here and you get a pass on the pop quiz. Um, This is... An in-house quiz is a test for those who are part of our church. So if you're not regularly here, you can sit back, smile, and look smugly at the people sitting around you struggling and sweating over these intense questions. All right, good. Now the subject of this five-question test is Grace's Outreach Partners. All right, here we go. Question number one. Grace supports men and women who live uh, in uh, overseas, representing Jesus Christ on five of the seven continents. We have outreach partners currently serving in five of the seven continents. We don't have anybody in Antarctica because there's no people there. All right, so no one. In, but which one of the other continents do we not have someone currently serving? That's question number one. Which one of the other? seven besides Antarctica do we not have one of our reach partners currently serving all right currently good question number two question number two some of our outreach partners are grandparents, uh, Jerry and Vivian Rogers, our grandparents, Jack and Sue Kranz, our grandparents. Uh, some of them, though, have young children at home. I want you to think with me for a minute about our outreach partners who have children in college age and below, college age and younger. There are 25 of these children. Name one of them. All right. Got 25 choices. Which uh, our outreach partners, children in college age and below? You just name one of them. All right, question number three. Some of our outreach partners grew up in homes where their parents were missionaries too. Uh, Actually, I count three of them. Three of outreach partners grew up with their parents serving as well. Maybe four if you want to argue about it. We'll come to that later. Um, Can you name one of them? One of our outreach partners whose parents themselves were missionaries. All right. That's number three. Question number four. Seven of our outreach partners were not born as citizens of the United States. Seven of them. Uh, One or two of them have become citizens. Some who were born citizens have also become citizens of the countries where they now live. But seven of them are, in the most clear sense, foreign nationals. All right, name one of them, one of our outreach partners, one of the seven who is, was uh, born not as a citizen of the United States. All right, question number five. This is the last one. Eleven of our outreach partners serve in Pennsylvania. Eleven of them, six families, eleven supported partners. Can you name one of them? One of our outreach partners who lives and serves in Pennsylvania. All right. That should not be that hard for you, okay? All right, here we go. Pencils down. Let's see how you did on our pop quiz. Question number one. Grace supports men and women who serve overseas on every continent except for Australia. Except for Australia. 
Um, it's been a long time since my geography class, so I had to ask to make sure. I asked Celia to make sure Australia was a continent. She said it was, you know. Pluto's not a planet. I'm not sure if Australia was still a continent, so, but Australia is the answer. Okay, question number two, 25 possible answers. You ready? Here they are. David, Luke, and Emily Brubaker, Emma Defois, Robbie and Timmy Guy, Tyler, Ian, Joya, Seth, Mercy, Levi, and Graceland Kramlick, Samuel, oh, sorry, Catherine and Hannah Harrop, Jonathan and Andrew Lehman, Isaac, Maria, and Elliot Niles, Samuel and Josiah Singh, and Nicole, Nathan, and Jessica Souza. There's the 25. Hopefully you knew at least one of those. Question number three, three of our outreach partners are MKs, Mark Niles, Jenny Guy, those two should have been the easiest for you to get, and Christina Souza. Christina Souza, we just started supporting the Souzas. They serve in Brasilia, Brazil, excuse me, Brazil. I'm so foreign, I say it like a foreigner. Uh, I believe that Christina Souza is actually a third generation missionary. I think her grandparents and her parents all served in Brazil. Now, some of you want to argue with me about Debbie Kramlick. Half credit for Debbie Kramlick. She grew up most of her time down the hill. So, All right, question number four, foreign nationals. Foreign nationals, there's seven. Fred and jo- Joanna Defoy and Jacques Yosti were born in France. Uh, Lydia Johns was born in Argentina. Julia Souza was born in Brazil. And Jiten and Rebecca Singh were born in India. That's seven, I think. All right, now finally here, the 11 outreach partners serving in Pennsylvania. You should have known this. Some of you are related to these people. All right? So, John and Melanie Birkenbein. Okay, Jessica got that right. All right, good. Okay. Leon and Mary Brubaker. All right. Jack and Sue Kranz. Let's see. John and Melanie are Penn State. Leanna Mary and Jack and Sue are in Coatesville. Cheryl Kuyper's in Millersville. If you got that wrong, it's time for some church discipline. All right, next. Jacques and Lenny Osti are in Philadelphia. Alan and Mickey Williams live in Elizabethtown. But I wonder how you did on this uh, quiz here. If you're part of the missions committee and you got any of them wrong, you need to resign. Right? Uh, My goal is today, what I want to do today is I want to show you from the Bible why you should care about the answers to these questions. Maybe not so much why you should care about how you do on an outreach partner's knowledge quiz, but I, I I, I want to convince you, I want to show you that from the Bible that when you hear these names or you think about where they are and what they're doing, your heart should be warmed. You, you, should, you should think about them with gladness for what they're doing and concern with how they're doing. And I want to accomplish that goal by reading uh, three, passage, three verses from the book of Acts chapter 13. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13, if you would, this morning. You know where the book of Acts is probably because we've turned to it for a long time. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Acts 13 Verse 1, this is a passage of scripture about the the very beginning of the work of carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ beyond the borders of Palestine, beyond the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria. This is the beginning of the work to the ends of the earth, to quote 
uh, Jesus from Acts 1. Now, we're going to look at this passage, and I confess to you that I'm going to read this passage with joy. I think you should read this passage happily and gladly. I'm going to commend what happens here to you. But some of you, some of you might have an objection, even as, as we begin. Um, there are some circles where this whole idea of missions going overseas to spread the good news about Jesus is offensive. Maybe you've, you've sat in a class with a professor who had this opinion, uh, a historian or an anthropologist or a sociologist who said that, that this work that the church has been engaged in for thousands of years is uh, harmful, that it's culturally or religiously imperialistic. It's damaging to cultures and nations just like colonialism was. It's imperialistic. It's cruel. It's robbing people of their native cultures by introducing to them a foreign, harmful, manipulative ideas. Have you heard claims like that before? Hmm. Well, um, the easiest way that, that Christians respond, the most quick way we respond to that objection, is maybe to say, we're not trying to enslave people to Western culture. We're bringing them good news. Good news. That's, that's what we're bringing. That might not convince you, even though we believe that wholeheartedly, um, if, if you have, are skeptical about this, you should hear about a study, by the ma- uh, a study by a man named Robert Woodbury. Robert Woodbury has made this his life work. He's been involved in it for 15 years. When he was in graduate school, he started studying the impact of Protestant evangelical missionaries around the world. And he has discovered, and he's tested this numerous ways, on-site interviews, statistical analysis. He's just been working and working and working on this for years. He has discovered that the single largest factor in the health of nations in the world is the influence of Protestant evangelical missionaries. That is, um, they don't bring destruction and exploitation and harm Countries where missionaries have been allowed to serve are more prosperous, more democratic, better educated, more stable, have greater public health, and have a greater public health than those countries where missionaries were not allowed to serve. Uh, just a couple examples. He visited in the course of his research the nation of Togo. Togo is in Africa. And he went to the University of Togo, and he walked into the library of the University of Togo, and he discovered that in the collection of the University of Togo, that the university had half as many books as he had in his own personal collection. And the encyclopedia that they had, the latest encyclopedia, was from 1977. He went to the bookstore at the University of Togo, and he found not books for sale, but paper and pencils. And he said to one of the students, where, where do you buy your books? Oh, we don't buy books, was the answer. Instead, uh, the teachers uh, read the textbook to us and we transcribe it in our notebooks. Now then he went across the border to Ghana at the University of Ghana and he walked into the bookstore and it was crammed with books. There were books everywhere in the University of Ghana bookstore. And in fact, there were a whole section of books printed by local printers and written by local scholars. Uh, The difference is that Togo was a French colony, and the French did not allow missionaries, and they educated only a small intellectual elite. Ghana, on the other hand, uh, British missionaries in Ghana set up schools and printing presses everywhere, and the country today has a thriving educational system. 
Here's another example. Now, some of you might be familiar with this. I'm not sure. Congo, the, nation, the region of Congo, has a, uh, a history of, of deep and great repression towards uh, the people that are there. In French Congo, the area ruled by the French, and in Belgian Congo, the area ruled by the um, Belgians, uh, villagers uh, in those native villagers were forced to harvest from the jungle rubber, and they were made as slave labor. And if you didn't go, the uh, colonialists would burn your village. Uh, they castrated men. They ripped the limbs off of children. It was just cruel and oppressive. Now, in French Congo, this went on for years, and nobody made any mention of it except there was one that Robert Woodbury found, one mention in a Marxist newspaper in France. But in Belgian Congo, again, evangelical missionaries were allowed to go into uh, Belgian Congo. Two British Baptist missionaries, their names were John and Alice Harris, took pictures of the abuse that was happening and smuggled them out of the country, and they traveled throughout the United States, throughout Great Britain, publicizing this. This is what's happening. This is what's happening in Congo. And there's a huge public outcry, and actually uh, in Belgian Congo, those abuses ceased. It's a controversial uh, uh, thesis. It's what Robert Woodbury has proved. Uh, uh, I'm going to quote him. Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainments, especially for women, and a more robust membership in non-governmental associations. Someone said about this, if you really want to help a developing country in the world, send them a 19th century Protestant evangelical missionary. It's the best thing you can do. Now, I suppose I've already given you one reason why you should care about uh, our church's investment in what uh, is going on overseas. You don't need to be a Christian to appreciate this. Uh, Human beings haven't yet created anything as effective for helping developing nations as an evangelical missionary. But what does the Bible say? That's what we're here to study, right? What, is, what does Scripture say about this? Let's look at Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Here we are. We're back in the city of Antioch again. We were here in chapter 11, and here we are again. Antioch, remember, is that city that's north of Jerusalem. It was an international city, and uh, that church was founded in Acts chapter 11. We read about it, and here's a report about its condition, more specifically a report about its leadership. Verse 1 mentions five leaders, Um, and, and it says that they are prophets and teachers. Now, prophets in the book of Acts function, I think, like Old Testament prophets. That is, they deliver God's message 
And they filled in specific the gap between the time when Jesus ascended into heaven and the time that the New Testament books were completed and gathered together. That's what a prophet did. We're going to talk about prophecy more in a few weeks. Uh, I'm not a prophet, but I'm predicting that that's true. So uh, the prophets, and then there were teachers. Um, It could be easy to slide by this in the book of Acts, but how many times does Luke say the church was devoted to teaching and teaching and teaching. The church is a teaching institution. It's committed to helping people know God through his word. Now, five men here who are listed. Uh, This is an example of team ministry. All five of them involved in this. We have a team of men who lead our church. We call them by one of the names the Baba uses to describe them. We, We call them elders. They work together to lead the church. Last week... I was interviewed by a friend of mine. He's taking a class in pastoral ministry at Lancaster Bible College, and one of his assignments was that he had to interview a pastor about the work that he does. And he asked me a question. He said, what do you do or how do you respond when the elders disagree with you about something that you want to do? Well, here's what I told them, and and, um, I actually do mean this. I wasn't faking it when I said it. I said to him, I have discovered over the years uh, that the ideas that we come up together as we debate and discuss are almost always better than any of the ideas that I come up with on my own. That might not be true at some churches. I know in some churches there's, um, it's true in a lot of places, but I'm sure in some churches there's elders who are interested in their own agenda, they're twisted, they're corrupt. Um, I have the privilege of serving with men who love the Bible and love the gospel and are interested in it uh, growing and spreading. And when they push back against any of the ideas that I have, usually the results are better than what I came up with myself. Our, Our newly formed elder board meets for the first time on Thursday. You should pray for us. Now, this is a a dream team here in Acts chapter 13. This is the the church leadership dream team. Look who is listed here. Barnabas is first. Barnabas, remember, we've met Barnabas before. William Barclay said that Barnabas is the man with the biggest heart in the New Testament. What a warm, encouraging man. And here he is leading, perhaps by by his name being listed first, leading this band, perhaps. Simeon is called Niger. Niger is a Latin name. Uh, it's a Greek, a Hebrew first name and a Latin last name or surname. And remember, it's an international city. And, and this may give us a clue about his ethnicity. Niger in Latin means dark or um, black-skinned. Maybe he's African. Lucius of Cyrene is African. Remember, Cyrene is in the, the northern part of Africa, modern-day uh, Libya. And then there's Menaean, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, oh, there's a lot of Herods in the Bible, aren't there? There's King Herod who was king when Jesus was born. That's not him. Uh, last week we read about Herod Agrippa uh, who died when he was eaten by worms. Not the same guy here. This Herod is Herod Antipas. And um, he was was the Herod, you know him, he was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded and who was involved in Jesus' trial. That's this this Herod that it's referring to here. And Menaean was brought up with him. In ancient courts, it was not uncommon, when a prince was born, they would find other young boys his same age and bring them to court and they would be raised in court 
at court with the future king, and, and you, were a, a, you were brought in to be a friend of the prince, a playmate, a schoolmate, a, maybe a competitor in games. Um, and Menaean had this privilege of growing up with Herod. It's an interesting how did Luke know all the things that Luke knows about what happened when John the Baptist was executed? I wonder if Menaean told him about that because his friend was that scoundrel who beheaded him. Menaean. And then last he lists here, Saul. Saul, the greatest missionary church planner and theologian the church has ever known. This is a dream team in Antioch. This dream team is assembled and God moves. And by recording what happens here in verses 2 and 3, the text is trying to tell us why we should care about the investments that we make overseas. Why we should think about that. Why we should care about those men and women. And I want to give you two reasons. Here they are. Number one, God calls people to this work. God calls people to the work. That's an almost verbatim restatement of verse 2, isn't it? (coughs) Set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's a verbatim restatement. And it needs some definition. What is the work that he's talking about here? It's not described specifically in the text, but from the rest of the story that we're going to discover as we read through Acts, God is commanding them to leave Antioch. Oh, God's taken two members of the dream team. I once heard an, uh, a, a missionary uh, organization, he was a mission agency leader, and he said... Don't send us your rejects. Send us the people you can't live without. Barnabas and Saul. Go. What do they do? They're supposed to leave Antioch and travel throughout the region around the Mediterranean Sea telling people about Jesus. They're fulfilling what Jesus had commanded them to do in Acts 1.8. Remember? You shall be uh, when you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what they're doing here. This is the work that that the Holy Spirit mentions. Or actually, this reminds me of Romans fifteen twenty. That verse, Paul says, "It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known." Go preach the gospel. This is the work. This is what God wants done. It's clear that God wants it done because Luke says the Holy Spirit said this. Now, how did the Holy Spirit say this? Skywriting? No, probably not. Uh, Probably he spoke through one of the prophets. One of these men who was a prophet delivered this divine message about God's plans for Barnabas and Saul. Now, you should notice attention this this text, or maybe you should think about this a little bit, this question. Um. On the one hand, I said a few minutes ago that prophets, see, prophets filled a gap between the time that Jesus ascended and the time uh, that the New Testament scriptures were completed. So that's when prophets functioned in the New Testament. But I also use the present tense term, God calls people to the work. He still does it. Well, how does that happen? Follow me for a minute. I, I want to think about with you about how the story of Acts unfolds. This book is the story of the progress of the word about Jesus, the message about Jesus. It starts in Jerusalem and it spreads and spreads and spreads. And the character in this story who is the most interested in pushing the church to spread this message about Jesus is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always sending people. He is always pushing them in the book of Acts to go and move and spread and share. 
I think the point of this passage, in the, the reason that, that, acts, that Luke tells us all these details, is not to help us, not to teach us to sit and wait and listen for the Spirit to speak through prophets. I think the point is to show me that the Holy Spirit has always been interested in it. He still is interested in it. God wants this work done. And if we are in line with the Holy Spirit and His desires, we should want this work done. Now, and then I, I read about these events in Acts, and then I pick up Matthew. These believers didn't have the book of Matthew. And Jesus said, we're to go and make disciples. And I pick up Ephesians 4. These believers didn't have Ephesians 4 and Acts 13 yet. And, and I see that God gives gifted people to, this, to the church for this work. And I see here, God's people are involved in this work. And so I, I, I think that through his gifting and through his church, God sends people. This is his priority. It's supposed to be high in the hearts and minds of his people. If you are in touch with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has influence at all in your life. This is something that you care about because he cares about it immensely. God's passion drives this work at the passion that drives the whole Bible. Starts in Genesis 2. God makes Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. He cultivates this little garden and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's supposed to happen? Adam and Eve are supposed to have babies, lots of babies. And those babies are to have babies and babies and babies and lots of babies until they fill the whole earth. And God's plan is that the whole world would be one cultivated garden filled with people who are made in his image, who love him and enjoy a perfect relationship with him, which is kind of like the world that we have right now, right? (laughs) It's not the world we have right now at all, is it? We live in a world where people are beheaded and children are abused and creation is polluted and promises are broken and lies are told and good things are cheapened and cheap things are exalted. It's the kind of world we live in. It's a world alienated from God. It's a world at enmity with him. This is, it was his intention that the whole world would be filled with people who know him and love him and serve him. Instead, the world is filled with hostility towards him. Now, in Genesis 3, God says to to Adam and Eve, I'm going to send a deliverer. He's going to come. He's going to lead the world in revolt against the darkness that you have introduced. In Genesis 12, he gets more specific. He, He blesses the world through one family. Um, Abraham and his descendants and those descendants become a nation and God gives them a temple and a land and God gives them a king David what a king David is and the high point of God's blessing what Solomon rules a queen comes from the south the queen of Sheba she comes up to Solomon and she says wow God has blessed you this land is amazing you're so wise and so wealthy this is awesome how amazing God is it's God's plan. He wants this, the knowledge of himself to spread throughout the world. And he worked through this one king, this one family, this one nation. 
Now, many, many years later after that, God sent his son into the world. He's the promised deliverer of Genesis 3. He's the true and better son of Abraham. He's the true and better king of Israel. He's the one who rescued us from our rebellion by paying the penalty that all rebels against God owe, namely death, and he rose again. God wants the message about him spread, this good news Because he wants everyone to trust in his son. He wants the whole world filled with people who have turned to him and trust in him and have life and forgiveness. This is good news. Publish it. Spread it. Announce it. God calls people to this work. Now in December, Time Magazine, maybe some of you who read Time saw this, Time Magazine did a cover story about Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg, of course, is the founder of of Facebook. And the article was about how Mark Zuckerberg wants the entire world to be connected to the Internet. He said it's a a technological problem, it's a sociological problem, it's an an economic problem. How do you you convince people that have never used the, the Internet that they need the Internet? That's a sociological problem. Some people say, Mark Zuckerberg... They criticize him. They say he just, he just wants the whole world connected so that they can all hook up to Facebook and he's trying to cover the world with cute kitten pictures and quizzes about which Harry Potter character you're most like. But that's some of the criticism he's gotten. But this is the challenge that he has set before him. He wants the whole world to be connected to the Internet and he's very serious about it. Here's what God wants. God wants the whole world to hear about the message about Jesus. And he wants to use people that you know to do it. He wants to use people that you love, people you don't think that you can live without, people as encouraging as Barnabas and as gifted as Saul, that sort of people. Those are the people that God wants to use. Now, here's the second reason why we should care about the investment that we are making overseas. Number two, God commands the church to commission people for the work. God commands the church to commission people for the work. Now, this is a strange story in some ways, I think, uh, isn't it? Um, God has called Barnabas and Saul. They've already been involved in this work in some way. He's redirecting them now in particular ways. And he starts this redirecting, redirecting work in Barnabas and Saul's life by what? Telling the church to commission them. If they've been called to God by God, why do they need the church? Why is the church important? Why is the church supposed to be doing something? Why not just tell Barnabas and Saul directly and get them going? What's the church for here? I'm going to use a word that's going to make some of you nervous, especially those of you who love to exalt in the sovereignty of God and give it all the weight that the Bible does, which is a good thing, but I'm still going to use this word because I think it applies. This is a cooperative venture. It's a cooperative venture. God calls and the church commissions or that makes you nervous, you could say God calls and then God commands the church to commission. Everyone here is is doing something. Either they're going or they're sending. Do you know uh, why, most bluntly, why you should care about the people who we knew about here in our quiz? God has commanded you to care. God has commissioned you. He has commanded you to commission, to send. 
We should all be thinking about this work this, and, and planning for it and hoping how this work will advance. We're going to begin to see this pattern that's going to dominate the New Testament. The church is interested in this. God calls people through and in the church. We recognize people with the gifts and graces and then we send them. It's interesting how this works. Most of the time when, when someone goes overseas, they come to the church first. They, they make an appointment. Pastor Joy, I'd like to talk to you. Sure, let's get together. Then they talk to the missions committee. Then they, we, we talk about it as a church. That's fine. That, that starts that way. What would it look like, though, if it happened the other way around? The church went to someone and said, Gary, Susan, we think that you're gifted for ministry, and you seem to be able to cross boundaries in your friendships and your ability to, to, to communicate. We think you should consider going overseas. Healthy congregations do that. But healthy congregations do. They think about who's next. Who are we sending next from our congregation? Who from our church is next? Dan's in Haiti and Hannah's in Morocco. Robin's on her way to Australia. <laughs> Australia. <laughs> Good. All right. Robin's on her way. Debbie, she's oh, been overseas for a long time. Leanna and Mary are in Coatesville. Mike and Jenny are Papua New Guinea. Who's next? Who's next? Let's send the best Sunday school teacher we have. Let's send the young man and his family, that, the young man that we think has the most potential to be an excellent elder in our church. Let's send them. Notice uh, there's this description of this church, this church that's thinking about this, this healthy sending congregation. It's a worshiping and fasting and praying church, isn't it? It's what they're doing. It's what they're doing when God speaks. It's what they do after he speaks. They pray. These are acts of devotion and dependence. And in the midst of their devotion and dependence, God spoke. And in response to his speaking, they pray and fast some more. I mentioned this last week. I'm not sure how many of you, if, if, it, if it landed deeply, but I, I su- suggested to you that one of the things that I hope happens as a result of our study of the book of Acts is that uh, everyone who's a part of our church will be involved regularly in prayer with at least one other person, maybe prayer meeting or your growth group or um, something, your mentoring group, uh, to, to pray together with someone about our church's role in this mission. Did you, I wonder if you contacted somebody about that. Somebody contacted me about it. Um, get one of the letters at the Welcome Center and take it with you to your meeting. One of those letters from our outreach partners that, are, uh, that Celia faithfully copies and puts there. Take that with you. and It'll give you something to pray about when, when you meet together. There's this praying and this fasting in this passage here in this text. I'm sorry to report to you that when Mike and Jenny left and before we sent off Dan, I didn't lead you in fasting prayer for them. Uh, we did two of the three things that are mentioned here. We, we prayed and we placed our hands on them. We didn't, we didn't fast. Now, why? Fasting is our most specific expression of dependence upon God. Fasting says, God, we need you more than we need food. Let's not forget, the next time this happens, next time someone goes, this is what we're going to do. It's how we respond. I don't have a television, um, 
most of you know that, but I have still managed to see at least half a dozen of the versions of the commercial that H&R Block is posting online, or on television. Have you seen these commercials from H&R Block? H&R Block wants to give you your money back. Um, it's tax service, right? And, and H&R Block wants Americans to get the billions of dollars they have coming from the IRS back. So you're supposed to go to the H&R Block and they'll help you fill out your tax form so you get the money back that you have erroneously given to the government. They're, they're, they're clever commercials. They're, they're well done. They, they make it, it seem like somewhere there must be an evil IRS agent who's saying curses. They found the, the loophole in the plan. It's a business, right, that they're, that they're trying to. But I, I know it's a business, but don't you think there must be some sort of joy in, in H&R Block employees when they sit across the table from somebody and say, oh, you're going to get $1,000 back. Oh, that's good news. Wouldn't that be good news to tell somebody? thousand dollars you make people happy at h&r block of course and i suppose there's people you don't make happy but but when, isn't it good it's good think about this those commercials in terms of this passage here there's joy in telling people good news jesus christ died for you he offered you life and forgiveness if you will but trust in his name i've come in his name to bring you good news life Far from being an evil IRS agent whose plans have been thwarted, God is in heaven saying, go for it. Send more people. Commission more people to go. Pray for them. Fast for them. Set them apart as carriers of good news, of great joy for all people. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and, and this is just the, the first step in this uh, whole story of how the Holy Spirit works and he moves and he sends. Lord, I thank you for these men and women that we know who you have called to this work. They're people that we love. They're people that we used to see all the time, people that we at one point in time thought we wouldn't be able to survive without. But you sent them, and and I'm grateful to you for the men and women in our church who, beyond anything I do, they have been involved in faithfully supporting and contacting and praying and and pushing people to go. Lord, we do give you, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see and, and minds and hearts that think about this question, who's next, who's next, who's next? We'll send them, Lord, as you provide for us, as you encourage us, as you fill our hearts with love for Jesus Christ and the work he does in calling people to himself. Uh, Lord, thank you for your great mercy to us. Enable us to faithfully live in dependence upon you for those we know and love who are overseas. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.